Vultures by Amelia Gray Read by Madeline Lambert The vultures were everywhere. On the local news, the meteorologist speculated calmly after his seven-day forecast that the vultures were eating moss by the river. They weighed down trees and circled over the town. I found Brenda looking at the sky when I came back from hauling boxes to the trash bins behind the daycare. They're over the baseball diamond behind the high school, she said, three blocks away. She shielded her eyes against the sun, watching. Everybody's looking up these days, I said. The radio says it's good for the muscles in your neck, Brenda said. Inside, the children had already begun to destroy the carton of Easter eggs we had hidden in the snack room. At home, I told my boyfriend, Toby, that he had to come with me to Evelyn Merkel's to mop her floors and fight the vultures. I don't want to go anywhere near any vultures, he said. It's my money, then. It would be your money, anyway. I've got some ideas, he said. I need time to put something together, and I can't waste it on vultures. Fine, I said. Evelyn Merkel was wearing a housecoat with a nightgown underneath and her hair was curled in rings that fell over her shoulders. She set her thin hand on Toby's back and gave him a little push over the threshold. Out back, she said. Mrs. Merkel had a metal pole in the yard to hold up the clothesline, and two vultures were chasing each other around it. They screeched and darted, beaks terrifying and open, showing sharp tongues. I couldn't figure if they were playing or fighting. When Toby moved the curtains to the side, they turned at once and screamed at us. Mrs. Merkel tugged the curtain back over the window. I don't want them knowing we're in here, she said. Do you two want breakfast? We already ate, I said. What do you have? said Toby. She had English muffins and unsalted butter. Mrs. Merkel said she wanted to make orange juice, but couldn't due to the vultures monopolizing her citrus tree. Out back, the birds made frantic scraping noises against the metal pole. Toby found a rake in the garage while I finished the dishes. Mrs. Merkel switched on a soap story. Toby stood at the door, gripping the rake with both hands. It was the old kind of rake, with a heavy metal bar at the end and tines that could aerate a lawn if you dragged it. On the television, strangers danced at a party. Don't slam the door, Mrs. Merkel said. Don't kill them. He laid his palm on the door. These vultures are symbols he said. Wave that rake around and make some screech noises, she said. I don't want you killing anything. One vulture was rooting around in the compost pile, and the other snapped at the clothesline and fell back. They're big, Toby said. He slid the door open. Outside, he danced around the vultures with his back to the wall. They shrieked, and he swung the rake low to the ground, catching a long divot of grass and flinging it back to the door. Mrs. Merkel turned up the volume on the television, and Toby took another swing, passing closer. The birds fell back in unison and took off running, rising. He leaned the rake against the wall and opened the glass door so violently that it smacked into the other side. For goodness sake, Mrs. Merkel said. Brenda invited me out to lunches on weekends because she wanted to be my friend. We drank ice water and watched the sky. Do you think there are more? She asked. She wore a thin neck brace almost covered by her turtleneck. There are more than last week.
Mrs. Merkel has three more, I said, squeezing lemon over ice, licking my fingers. The parents are asking me about it. I don't know what to tell them. They don't think it's safe to bring their children outside. Did you tell them it was safe? I don't know if it's safe. I don't think it is. She held her hand to her throat and leaned back in her chair to look up at the sky. On the radio, they say the vultures won't go until they've exhausted a population. I just wish somebody would do something about it, she said. I'd swear that they're after us. The next morning, I touched Toby's hand. He looked up from the paper. Mrs. Merkel's vultures are back, I said. He chewed at the inside of his mouth. I can't spend all my time there, I said. I have a job. I can't go. I'm working on an idea. He closed the paper and pushed a yellow pad towards me. On it was a drawing of a refrigerator door, with knobs and buttons in a row across the top. What is it? Condiment dispenser. I'm working on the cleaning mechanism, and then I'm going to call a phone number, and they're going to start making it. Would it really work? I leaned over to the notepad again, and he covered it with his hand. You're always talking about how you can't find the right jar of mustard, he said. This way, they'd all be in a row. There's a panel across the top. You don't even have to open the refrigerator door. Do I need to do the rake trick myself? You'd never have to look for mustard again, he said. I showed up thinking Mrs. Merkel wouldn't be home, but when I went to take the sheets off the bed, I found her crouched in the corner of her bedroom. I know what they're here for, she said. They're waiting for me. She had a cardboard box taped over the window. They've been circling for days she said. They're waiting for me to die. Don't say that. That's what they do, isn't it? They wait for things to die, and nobody's doing anything to help me. She stared at her cardboard window. I'm hungry. The adhesive remover would be in the garage. I'll make some soup if you come out of here, I said. Twenty minutes later, she emerged from the bedroom looking apologetic. I've been alone for fifteen years, she said. Your soup is at the table. She sat down at the table. I know what they're here for, she said to the soup. When I got home, I found Toby on the couch, eating peanuts and drinking champagne from the bottle. She's losing it, I said. I think we could really do something with this town if we set our minds to it. He passed the bag of peanuts. I was just thinking, everyone's scared to death of these vultures. He took a drink of champagne and wiped his mouth with the back of his hand. We need to make some kind of repellent. I sat at the other end of the couch, and he moved his feet to give me more room. How would we do it? I asked. We play off people's security, he said. Take a guy afraid they'll find him while he's playing golf. Sell him a golf umbrella with metallic panels. Blind the birds? Or a lady who's scared they'll eat her garden. Sell her a bag of quicklime, but you've got vulture repellent written real big across the front. He took a long drink of the champagne. The overhead is practically zero. Brenda ushered the children inside as soon as they stepped out of their parents' cars. She held them close to her, casting furtive glances at the sky. The children usually played out front on nice afternoons, but the meteorologist's article in the newspaper said the vultures came in with the warm front and to be cautious when allowing children and small animals out. 
Did they carry off Mrs. Merkel's laundry? Brenda asked. We were eating a snack with the kids. She hasn't hung her clothes out in a month. She wears her house coat and the underwear she put in storage years ago. Who puts underwear in storage? An animal cracker fell in my glass of milk. The children had all the typical, meaningless, adorable things to say. Lewis asked if the devil sent the vultures, probably because he had seen the flock circling over the abandoned Methodist church. Brenda's child said the vultures came from the desert and smoked cigarettes. For the craft project, I came up with the idea of making vulture pictures out of feathers and macaroni. After they finished, we could paste on some paragraph printed from a book about where vultures come from, and the kids could take the pictures home to their parents. Brenda put Robert in time out when he made a picture of a vulture eating his baby brother. I don't think I want children, I told Brenda, who was busy separating feathers globbed together with dirty paste. They're not bad when you have one at a time, she said. You shouldn't wait until you're 30, though, Brenda said. Your kid'll end up retarded. Where'd you hear that? Radio, she said, sneaking another cracker from the bin. It's medical science. How are your boyfriend's ideas coming? He's making a vulture repellent. She finished her cracker and started filling juice cups on a tray. That's a pretty good idea, she said. That's good that he's trying to do something. He wants to poison them. He could market that. She drank a cup of juice and filled it again for the tray. You've got to believe in him, or he's going to lose faith in himself. But he wants to kill them. I'm not saying you need a man right now, but that man of yours, he's fine. He's no bastard like Brittany's father. He's an inventor. He's one of those genius types that we don't understand right away. She pursed her lips and picked up the juice tray. Just let him crack his eggs, honey. The blue panel with yellow flecks I saw in Mrs. Merkel's backyard was, on closer inspection, an image of the Virgin Mary printed cheaply on a hook-stitched rug. It hung from the clothesline. Inside, Mrs. Merkel had meatloaf in the oven. Your beau brought it over, she said. He put the clothesline back up and said a prayer, and wouldn't you know, those buzzards haven't touched the ground since. We watched Mary from the kitchen window. She held her palms serenely against the possibility of vultures. The blue tassels at the edges of the rug flicked around in the wind. Toby had arranged pillar candles and small statues. The pillar candles had blue and green wax and depicted the stations of the cross, and a big white one was set in the center for the resurrection. It was so kind, Mrs. Merkel said. He wants me to call him if they come back down. I'm making meatloaf. She was wearing a faded yellow dress with a wide white belt. Her hair was out of curlers, and she had it pulled back. She was stirring a pitcher of tang. I feel like a million bucks, she said. It's not very Methodist, is it? She tapped the spoon on the pitcher. It's more Methodist than shooting them, which is what Mr. Dobbs was doing. Toby was smiling in his sleep. He had my satin eye pillow strapped to his face. I crawled into bed and lay my arm over him, kissing the back of his neck. When the sun came in through the windows and it got too warm, I pointed the fan towards the bed. On the kitchen table was Toby's stack of receipts, for groceries mostly. On the top was one from the Christian supply. It was deducted from his total debt. 
refigured and circled, $1,103.38, in red pin. Brenda ordered a crab cake at lunch. How's the inventor? She asked. He's still working on it. Any day now, she said. You stick with a man like that, he'll hit on something soon enough. I'm starting to wonder how long I have to stick is all. Brenda's crab cake arrived, and she stabbed at it with her fork. Britt had to go to the vet, she said. I mean the doctor. The cat had to go to the vet. What's wrong with Brittany? She stuck a ball of paper in her ear. I don't know why she did that. They had to use long tweezers, actually. Cost me $20. My chicken salad came in a lump on lettuce leaves. Why did you have a baby so young anyway? Brenda speared the crab cake and lifted up the corner of it, turning the piece over with her fork. Were you scared of the retardation thing? I asked. Yes, she said. She took a bite. What's wrong with the cat? I asked. Put it to sleep, she said. The meteorologist interrupted his weekend forecast. It's a dark world out there he said, tapping the sensor in his hand and changing the seven-day on the green screen to a picture of a vulture. We've had a lot of calls and letters. The picture faded and changed to one of a group of vultures closing in on a family. Keep walking when you leave your house. Don't stop for anything. Carry your children and keep your pets on a short leash. Protect your backyard by putting up a chicken wire net. Brenda stayed five hours past close, hanging a plastic net over the daycare's backyard. She tried to crimp the wires with her hands and ended up in the clinic for tetanus shots. After that, she refused to leave her bed until the vultures left. I had to lead classes. We finger-painted vultures and made vulture sculptures with popsicle sticks. We drew plans in crayon, detailing how to safely trap and release vultures. Robert drew his baby brother as bait. After show and tell, I told a story about vultures. Once upon a time, there was a kind princess who lived in a castle protected with spiked walls and lava moats and knights. She had a beautiful garden and a stable full of prize horses, but she could never leave the castle because of the killer birds circling day and night. They avoided the spiked walls and flew over the lava moat to stay warm. The knights couldn't reach them with their swords, and the situation grew desperate until one of the knights had the brilliant idea to kill one of the smaller horses and fill it with quicklime. The vultures swooped down, gorged themselves, and fell dead. And the knights had the whole mess cleaned up before the princess came out for her evening walk. Toby bought 50 golf umbrellas from a wholesaler for his vulture project. He handed me the recalculated debt when I walked in the door. I wanted panels of aluminum and fabric glue, he said but it was impossible to cut the panels correctly. I ended up buying jumbo rolls of aluminum foil and stapling them to the nylon. That's itemized on the second receipt. The second receipt. Under the first one. These will sell, he said. A single prototype lay finished between us. My old manager at the range said he was very interested, and all I showed him was the model. He pointed at the mess of foil and fabric. The staples had snagged on the support poles and ripped the fabric, and he had lined the exposed rips with tape and rows of staples and more foil. I didn't even want to touch it. Perhaps the model would benefit from another layer of nylon? 
I'm doing this for us, he said, carefully examining his work. I don't need any help. Thank you, though. I would prefer to do this one for us. He opened the umbrella and closed it again to keep the top layers of foil intact. You could have bought a reflective nylon, something that wouldn't split so easily. You're profiting from this, he said. I was different before, but I'm helping us now. I'm using my intelligence, and I'm really starting something for us. Don't shut me down already when you haven't even seen what I can do. Listen, I said. I want to forgive your debt. Toby picked up his box of 49 compact golf umbrellas, his jumbo roll of aluminum foil, both staplers and three cans of spray adhesive, and walked out. After he left, I turned on the television. The news had a camera following the meteorologist, who made a camouflage tent and camped among the nests in protest of the hunters. The Methodists were holding nightly prayer meetings, and when the TV cameras arrived, they played an electric guitar. At the corner store, the shelves of bread and milk were cleaned out. The hunters were taking practice aim at the magpies in the parking lot. The meteorologist took over the camera and was speaking urgently about buckshot and environmental activism. I didn't answer the phone when it rang, and Mrs. Merkel cried from the machine that the vultures had gathered on her clothesline and weighed it down towards the candles. Her Virgin Mary rug had been burning for hours. Nothing can be done, she cried. I turned up the volume on the TV, thinking, that rug must look like a miracle. You're listening to Fiction Transmission, a project of Fiction Collective 2. FC2 is a nonprofit author-run publisher of innovative fiction, a literary alternative since 1974. Every week we bring you a story and a conversation. You just heard Vultures by Amelia Gray from her book Museum of the Weird, published by FC2 in 2010. Next, Amelia is joined by Sarah Rose Etter, winner of the 2019 Shirley Jackson Award for her novel The Book of X for a conversation across the cosmic distance of isolation. First of all, how are you doing? Oh, so good. Just hanging in there. Yeah, just hanging in there. Uh, I know you've been really, really busy. Yeah, I mean, the eternal sort of story, trying to balance work and writing. And um, I'm writing about working in advertising right now and remembering when I was writing and working in advertising. So it feels kind of recursive. Um, and kind I know of a you know circle. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> but I know you know the feeling of that. Uh, yeah. We are we are work life balancers, you and I. Yeah, that's what we do. We work all the time. Constantly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm yeah. not about to balance. I think it's just working. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's no life. I mean, work is life. You know, game game is life. Oh, true. Uh, so this story, let's talk about it. We want to talk about vultures. Oh, I would love to talk about vultures. I just looked at it this morning. 
What did you feel when you revisited it? Oh, it's, it's, it was like, oh my God, I totally forgot that I wrote this in first person. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, why? First of all, why did I write this in first person? But I was I was pretty charmed by it in the end, um, by the by the by the POV. I mean, but but the story too. And um, I it's it's really um, it's funny to read stuff when I can I can really see what my and remember what my like influences were, and I can remember what was going on, and uh, it's it's like looking through a a scrapbook kind of kind of thing it's like a slight uh I don't know a little like mirror that looks in the past um yeah I'm curious how long ago did you write it and then kind of what what frame of time was that for you in your life I I wrote it in 2005 um I wrote it in 2005 I had just started grad school uh and it's it was one of the more it's one of the first kind of blatantly autobiographical stories that I wrote in a way um because I was in a I was in a relationship with a man I really really loved and and it was falling apart the relationship and we were at this kind of place where um we were just trying to make money, just trying to make enough money to like continue to pay the rent. And we had this ongoing earnings debt tally going on between us and our, and uh, he kept, I was, I was in school and he had kind of moved to Texas, middle of Texas with me. And, and we were both just trying to like make it work and things were just not working. And so then I was going to school, I was at Texas state, um, which is in San Marcos, Texas. And one thing about San Marcos is that it's often full of vultures. Um, in part, I mean, I think it's like a hill country thing and it's like a being in the woods thing, but Texas state is also home to this, um, this body farm, like a cadaver, like the forensics department has a, has a cadaver um, field. And, People can, you can donate your body to the department and they study it out in this field, this literal field, where they, they put it out there to see decomposition, see what happens in different conditions. And it's like extreme, like extremely valuable service to, to forensic science. And the town is full of vultures. Uh, as crazy. That's the result. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think I... I actually didn't know that at the time that I wrote the story vultures, I was just in this relationship that was in a tailspin and there were vultures flocking everywhere. And it was such like a obvious metaphor. Um, but I, it was so obvious that I couldn't even see how obvious it was as a metaphor. <laughs> and it was just like, I was depressed and the town was full of vultures and, um, Certainly, if I knew about the body farm, I would have made more hay of it in this short story. But instead, <laughs> I just wrote about, like, vultures fighting each other around a clothesline, which is something I saw. I was just kind of like, you know, at the end of a relationship when you're just dead-eyed on a bus and you're staring at things. And that's that's kind of where I was at <laughs> mentally when I wrote vultures. You know what's interesting, too, is it's like, if you 
scale back reading it now, it's like they, the way they represent threat and the way that they represent like the escalation, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's like, you get this, I think what the story does really, really well among other things is it's like this menagerie of human responses to nature, you know, like, Uh yeah, you have like people trying to solve it. You have people trying to pray it away. You have people protesting, trying to kill it, you know, and then Uh the media is just like escalating it all the time. Um, mm-hmm. I, I really loved that aspect of it. Like, I thought it was really rich how you captured all these different reactions to these vultures that really now, when I read it, it's like they could be almost a stand-in for anything on the news, you know, that leads to uh-huh. being empty. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, thanks for saying that. I think that's true. I think um, when I was reading it, I was really remembering a short story I was obsessed with at the time, which was, the story called The Prophet from Jupiter by Tony Early. Um, it was in his book, Here We Are in Paradise. And it's and it's about these people that live around a uh they live around a lake, but there used to be a town in the lake and then they dammed it up and the and the lake filled this filled this uh basin that, that has a town at the bottom of it. It's just kind of about people that the people that live around this town and and um it has this kind of this, this really similar sort of menagerie, uh, like an ensemble, I guess, and um, sort of the ways that different people are dealing with the same place, like the way the realtors deal with it and the way the, the dam keeper deals with it and his and his wife and her boyfriend or whatever. And, um, yeah, I... I I just love that. And I was, I also, I think was, I, I think I was reading a lot of Amy Bender. I think she had a collection that just came out and, and she had said something at the time that was like, um, it was like dispatch with, uh, I, I don't know exactly, I, I can't remember exactly what she said, but the idea under it was like, you're not as clever as you think you are. And like, take an idea that you feel like you're dancing around to just say it directly. Um, and that was really, I, I had vultures on submission like a million different places. And I started getting these rejection letters that were like, this metaphor is so obvious, like the symbol is so obvious or whatever. And it, it was like, they were kind rejections, but it was sort of like, I think the under the subtext was like, you're not really like as clever as you think you're being. And then I just, I went into it and was like, I had somebody say like the vulture, I think the boyfriend says, Toby says the, the vultures are a symbol. These vultures are symbols. <laughs> you know. <laughs> it's like, and then once he says that, it just kind of opened it up in a way. It's like, it's like, okay, now the way that the media is handling it and the way that the, the, um, Counts people who are the, the 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 older woman is religious and the and and Toby is trying to come up with like financial solutions for their for their relationship and for the vultures and you know it's it's now it's all kind of out there and it's not like it's not like oh do you see what I'm doing here it's like no it's it's obvious what I'm doing here um, yeah yeah I think that's an element that does reoccur in a lot of your work like it it you uh-huh. know it's it's being weird but it also is acknowledging like where it is being weird and it's sort of like meta in a way and I really love that especially that the touch here was just I thought was really lovely because it's sort of like nodding at what we expect of the story and mm-hmm. how we expect it to operate I, so I, I always love that part about your work like it seems like it's kind of winking sometimes you know yeah it's just me trying to um 
to get away from like the the writer that I am that can like find myself too clever, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> like to just dispatch with with that a little bit and to sort of talk about what it is, I guess. I yeah, I did it in in AMPM now that I think about it. I have a lot of like <clears throat> this this PDF is a symbol of my love for you kind of kind of stuff. It's like meant to shake myself up a little bit, you know, so it's not just about the symbol. It's about, it's about talking about the symbol. Yeah. Are when you, so when you go back and look at it, like, are there things you would do differently? Cause I read it and I was like, I really like, I love this. You know what I mean? <laughs> I always wonder, I like for me, whenever I look back at work, older work, I'm like, Oh, I would do this differently. Do you feel that way ever? Or do you just, are you, <sighs> I, I do feel that way a lot. Yeah. Um, for this, I, I don't know. I just, I, I so rarely write in first person. I think I've done it. I feel like I've done it twice. I really thought I'd only done it once. And then I saw this. I was like, oh my God. I've done it twice. Um, but that's, that's, that's strange to me, but I don't, I don't hate it. I, I mean, there's, there's a couple, there's actually a typo in my version. <laughs> um, there's like, I, uh, there's something about it that it's like, it's messy in ways that I might've, I might've tidied up a little bit and clipped things and cut things down, I think, but, but actually reading it, it's, it's kind of fun. And, uh, I, I, I read through it and then I actually, uh, opened up the novel I'm working on and started editing it for the first time in like months because I was, I was kind of like, Oh yeah, it's this, there's a sense of play that I think yeah. I've, I, I I like don't have as much that I, I was like oh god that was fun it's like it's 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 messy in places so it's like yeah but there's there's a time when like you know Brenda's talking about Britney and and I'm like is she talking about Britney Spears and then later I realize oh yeah no her kid's name is Britney right why does Brenda exist in this story I can't remember <laughs> but okay it, I have to. I have to ask you this though. What is the, I never have talked to you about this, but I've known you for a long time. What is the hesitation to first person? Do you have like a thing? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I, I clearly have a thing. Uh, I don't know. I don't know what it is. I think it's like, um, to me, I want, I want first person usually to be less about the the first person. Like if it's going to be, when it's third person, it can just be, ah, you know, Jackie this, Jackie that, Jackie did this, Jackie looked over here, Jackie's on this trip or whatever. But like when it's first person, I, I really like, uh, and this, this is totally personal preference, but I, I like it being more about the other characters other than the, other than the self, I think. Mm-hmm. And it's, mm-hmm. and I think I'm doing it here where it's not so egregious. There's another first person story I have where I think it's a little more obviously first person, like it's like me, 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 me. And I just think first person, I think every POV should be kind of invisible. Like that's why it's so hard to do second or like, you know, um, or that's why it's hard for me to do second person <laughs> or, or, or like plural, you know, kind of third or something plural first or whatever we uh it's like a trick then because it's so hard to make it feel natural or invisible or 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 whatever but but it's like to me i think the longer something is the the more it makes sense as first person like like a novel like i part of isadora is in first person present um 
which is wild. But okay, so there are three things I've written in first person. <laughs> <laughs> you're like, not think about it. <laughs> I, I love that. I do love that trick, though, because I hear what you're saying. I was reading a story the other day. I think it was by Erin Summers in Joyland, and that she's mm-hmm. doing. It was like it was so well done that I forgot what what you know POV it was written in. And then I went yeah. back and I said, like, oh, God, this is like a close third. You know, it's like it, you, you, I thought it was first, but then I'm like, oh, no, it's a close third. It's very uh-huh. crazy if someone's doing it well, how it sort of like evaporates, you know. Right. Yeah, I agree. And and it's really I find it's easy for me to get in my own head about it. And I, I know you and I both have changed changed POV on on ourselves. And it's really about like feeling what figuring out what feels right in the in the long haul, I guess, in the story or in the, in the work, it's like, yeah. so, yeah. And then, then it's like what I'm, I'm, I'm most comfortable in, in third, I guess. Um, but that's just me. You know, it's, it's crazy too. I want to jump back to something that you said about the idea. Um, Cause I had a very similar experience reading this again, reading the story vultures again. Um, mm-hmm. It did remind me how fun it used to be to write and like how, <laughs> yeah. how I had gotten like too kind of like hate in my shoulders when I write now. Mm-hmm. And I feel like, and maybe it's because of like, I don't know if you feel this about a novel, but it's like a novel requires something so different that it's very easy to just get tensed up about it. You know what I mean? I do. And it's, and it's like, it's also the certain part of editing too, uh, editing a novel or editing editing anything. I mean, it's just so easy to get like really rigid and really like, okay, I got to explain what this is. I've got to do this transition from this dial. I've have to I have to write a physical description of the space or else it feels like we're floating in the middle of a black box theater. You know, it's just yeah. Like, um, and then to go back and read something that like exists and has existed for fifteen years now, it's just crazy and and like be like oh my god it's so fun and effortless (laughs) you know I mean it's all fake this is all I I was working on this story for for I think five years um after I I I had a draft and then uh and but yeah I mean between writing it it was in my it was in my thesis and then I redid it for for publication and then I redid it for the book you know and so it's been through so much it's like a rag you know, but it's, but but just through like time and a patina on it and or something, it's like oh my god, it's so effortless, so fun. <laughs> it's not like a, it's not a rag. It's like more like a dependable nice car, I think. Oh, I, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. The car is full of rags, however. <laughs> there are many. There are many rags in the trunk. There's just nothing. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Big time. Yeah. No, but you're right. It was definitely reinvigorating because I do think, um, I don't know if you feel this way about like kind of that era of like experimental writing that we were all in that I feel like it's still kicking around a little today, but I feel like I see less of it maybe. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. But it, we did not, we did have like a real heyday, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. you know um, for just like, you know, the weird and the kind of like uh, absurd, you know, observations we were making our work um so i think i think we were all kind of running and gunning like that but yeah it's nice that it feels effortless even though it took a lot of work yeah i don't know i don't know what it is now are we are we more cynical now is it just us are we just older i think everybody gets more cynical in fascism 
So I will say. That's true. true. I mean, I wonder all the time, I'm like, you know, when I think about the getting older thing, I'm like, maybe this is just all the stuff that our parents were upset about the whole time. You know, when you're always Mm. like, why are my parents always in a bad mood? Or like, they always seem stressed (laughs) out. And it's like, Uh maybe maybe that's just what being a grown-up is. But I do feel like, are these unprecedented times? And could I just have some precedented times? Like, I would love, <laughs> I would love some precedented times. May I have one precedented <laughs> time? Yeah. Could you, I could think you so. Please. I think so. Drum. Well, I mean, it's, there, what, what's interesting to me is, um, because for my, for, for this, this show I'm working on, which is about Watergate, I'm, I'm living a lot in 1972 through 74. And, and there is, there is quite a bit of precedent to to government breakdown and to general like uncertainty about the American experiment and um, to like kind of chickens coming home to roost and tensions deepening, et cetera, et cetera. Um, of course, we found ways to make this time more unprecedented <laughs> than previous, but but it is interesting that that there there have been times in in relatively recent memory that um people thought you know like america was over and you know that that things had kind of had gone gone downhill in a way that they would never come back up and um so that's been kind of interesting um but but it does it is different it does change also and 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 things that that were started back in the 70s in terms of um ideological politics really really have entrenched and that puts a different flavor on things but um yeah i think this is what being a grown-up is and and i i've won out (laughs) (laughs) can i please eject myself from this (laughs) i also i also wonder if it's just like we're going through so much right now that it's hard to like process it in any kind of like artistic way in some ways right like you kind of need some distance yeah, I I think so. It's like um, you know, how many good novels are there about 9/11 that were written directly after 9/11, you know. Yeah. I can think I can think of maybe one, you know, Laird Hunt's book. <clears throat> but but yeah, I think that I think that we're processing from 5 years ago or I am anyway. I'll just speak for myself. Like I'm writing this book that that for me emotionally, I guess in 2014 or so and I just I'm living through what I'm living through and and it's it's obviously informing really deeply that kind of era but um but that's as that's as recent as I can get a little bit I I think yeah yeah, Vultures is strange in that um I was writing it really close to my experience of it and it and it's sort of that sort of autobiographical field that happening as it's happening but i think short stories can get away with that easier. more so than so, a novel yeah yeah, yeah. I think so just because of the length because of the length and the depth and like you know what you're trying to get at because because vultures in a way it's like it's there's just like a feeling there's a feeling of uh it's not saying anything it's not attempting to say anything larger than a than the than this back and forth relationship story. The fact that it, or the ways that it does are like, not because of my galaxy brain, but like unintentional as to like, you know, I'm a human writing in the world. And so I've pulled this stuff in um, accidentally or incidentally. Um, But like, 
but yeah, it's, it's aims were pretty slim. It's sort of like uh, the feeling of a relationship ending the part of a relationship where you're really just tallying up debts against each other and, um, and how depressing that is, you know, uh, <laughs> <kind of> it. <laughs> well, you know, I, I actually, what I loved about this too is that there's like, obviously this tension in the relationship, but then you still have other women telling her to like, feel lucky. About yeah. me, like they're telling her to like appreciate this man. And it's, I've been reading uh-huh. a lot of books lately. I just finished this really great memoir called consent. Um, where uh-huh. something very, very similar happens. Um, this like 14 year old girl ends up having a love affair with a 50 year old man that everyone just kind of stands by and lets happen, you know? Mm-hmm. And she's like looking back on this, like horrified, obviously, like that mm-hmm. no one stopped it. And when they finally break up, she ends up, um, at a great philosopher's house crying because they were friends with mm. him. And he tells her like, you're just lucky to have been chosen by him. You know, you, oh. should just, you should just, you should be grateful that an artist as great as him chose you and you should dedicate your life to helping him make his art. And I, <laughs> you know, and, and right. And it's like, it's the, I, I felt that same energy here because it's like um, that, that seemingly small moment in this story mm-hmm. right because it's obviously not the focus it just for some reason hit me right in the heart you know mm-hmm. because how devastating that like someone would be not fulfilled or they'd be unhappy and to hear mm-hmm. like you should just stick it out right 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 yeah I remember a lot of um I had a a, a theory back then that I was calling like pioneer days and it was like ah in pioneer days this would be this would be fine. I would be so lucky to be with this guy. This that was, it was the principle I, I I applied to a different person than the, than this than this guy. I actually really like the sex that I write about in Vultures. But um, yeah, Pioneer Days uh, was a sad one. But it's <laughs> I mean it's it's the math that I guess you know women do a lot. I think people do a lot in different ways of mm-hmm. of like it's it's a very universal condition to be like is sort of placing what what your feelings are about what a relationship should be or what a connection should be against what this is against you know how you feel about the person against your own ego against you know their potential and their reality and you know what they're capable of and you know it's a really complicated equation um dating and partnership pioneer pioneer blowing my mind i have to be honest (laughs) It's a, very, it's a very you thing. Like I can just see people like walking around. Yeah, <laughs> it's like the philosophy of life. <laughs> that's how that's how the old that's how the old bird brain works. Yeah, it's, it's, it's my least favorite ride. It's always Dolly Parton. Really is. Um, so uh, one last thing, I was curious: is there anything about this story that no one has ever asked you that you wanted to talk about? Oh wow. <laughs> um that's a that's a good one. I I guess it's like I'm sort of obsessed looking back and this is just me looking back as a scrapbook kind of thing with what's real and what's not in it and and like who cares other than me. Um but I was trying to think of what inventions my boyfriend at the time was actually working on. Um because I mean, I think he I think he was working on a condiment dispenser and like a vulture a vulture device that was like a a, a uh, umbrella, um, and it was just so 
it, those, those seems like the thing, I mean, kind of a dispenser is just something that exists. That's not a great invention, but like, uh, <laughs> but it's like, it seems when I look back at it, it's kind of like, ah, those are, those are, those are funny details, but sort of the, it's funny that, that the, the odder things sometimes in my fiction are the more, the more real um, things I remember. Yeah. I, you know, I wish that people would think about, like, when people talk about the surreal aspect, so many of the times I'm like, no, that actually happened. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. I, I totally feel that. And it's like the more, the more, the, it's often like, it's I've got to couch this whole thing with, like, more mundane, like, details that are invented, like, like this Brenda character and, and them having lunch together and egg sandwiches and whatever I'm writing about, that's all invented. It's like vultures who are fighting over a Virgin Mary rug in someone's backyard was real. And <laughs> like, <laughs> like all those strange, like the, the inventions and, and, you know, billing them for billing each other for these, for, for everything, all that stuff is real. And, um, that, Isn't that yeah? Strange? Because that, that, strange. Means, that means the actual surrealism is the everyday stuff that we have to conjure up and insert yeah. in the story. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Or yeah, it's like um, yeah. I have a story in this collection. I I think it's this one. Yeah, yeah. It's called Babies, and a woman gives birth to a new baby every day. Um, I love that. I love that one. Oh, thank you. Uh, and 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 it's like um. Obviously, I obviously I wasn't doing that, but I was, I was with a different guy at the time, and I had in my mind like, uh, I thought I was pregnant, and it was like, oh my god, what if I, what if I had a baby with this guy? Obviously, there's a lot of baby stuff in vultures too, but um, and then it, and then my mind just kind of like latched onto this, this weird, you know, fantasy or idea. And it just became real for me. Like, I don't know. I'm talking about this thing that definitely wasn't real as if it was, but it was like, it was like, I think for surrealism to work for me anyway, in my writing, it's like, I, I can't just like toss it off as like a quirky detail. It has to be something that exists in a very real way in my yeah. mind. You know, yeah. it's not in reality. It has to, or it has to be tied to some kind of like core emotion. You know, it can't just be weird for weird's sake. And I, I teach your stories all the time in classes because, one, I think you always hit your first line, like your first two lines every time. Are, and it, that's very true here, right? Like the first line's great, but the second line is just like a gut punch escalation, you know, and all of a sudden it's like, okay, we're off to the races. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I, I feel that you've always done that so, so expertly in your work, um, managed to make it, like, Strange, but also very, very familiar. You know, mm. yeah, it's a great. Yeah, it's just, thanks, thanks. Yeah. It just can't be clever for clever's sake, or else what's the point? I love this. This is fun. Yeah, and it and it just makes me want to write. So hopefully, people who who find themselves listening to this have the same feeling. Yeah, I guess that means that it's time for everybody to get back to work. Get back to work. <laughs> get back to the desk. Get back to work. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks to Amelia Gray and Sarah Rose Etter for joining us this week. 
Fiction Transmission is made by FC2 with generous support from the Jarvis and Constance Doctorow Family Foundation. This episode was produced by Brian Kahn, engineered by Joel Thibodeau, and read by me, Madeline Lambert. You can find FC2 online at fc2.org, on Twitter at FCTWO, and on Instagram at Fiction Collective 2. Please join us next week for another story and a new conversation.